I'd like to invite this morning all of God's people to open your Bible to Psalm 95. If you're one of his this morning, there's a message for you. Let's start today by reading the text. Just a brief background of what it is that we're reading this morning. You'll notice when you get to Psalm 95 that there's no psalm title identifying the particular human author that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. But in the Septuagint, the ancient translation of Hebrew into Greek, the psalm title states this, the praise of a song by David. And I believe that this is truly a psalm that is written by David, and I say that with even more argumentation Because in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews actually preaches a sermon on this exact psalm. Most of Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 are an exposition of Psalm 95. And in Hebrews 4-7, the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 by saying that God spoke these words in or through David. Now, Hebrews preached... This psalm. But I believe that this psalm itself is a sermon written by David to the people of God uh, who, were, uh, who were under his leadership. And so the words of this psalm that I'm going to read in just a moment read like a heartfelt sermon from a prophet king to his beloved people. And you'll notice something it divides into two parts. The first half of the psalm is a call to worship, the second half, of the psalm is a warning about the possibility of an unbelieving heart. Let's look at this amazing psalm beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 95. O come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. The sea is his and he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, If you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the provocation, as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err. I'm going to pause right there. The word err is actually a word, the same word that is used in Isaiah 53 when it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. And so what is David saying about these people in their their heart? He says, these are a people that do go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Unto whom the Lord says, I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. Lord, would you encourage our hearts today to be the people of God who are identified in this psalm, who are called to worship your name, who rest in the gospel, the soul-satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. 
If there's anyone here today that cannot be invited as a people of God or who, or who comes believing that they are the people of God, but perhaps there's not a genuine faith in their heart, I pray that you would move them today through the, 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 the message of David and the working of the Spirit of God in our hearts that you would draw a people to your name as true worshipers. Help me to be filled with your Spirit as I preach this amazing passage, and I pray that you would just encourage our hearts and be glorified in this, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Last December, so just a couple months ago, there was a woman by the name of Kelly Conlon. Perhaps you've heard of her name. Uh, and she was with her daughter and her daughter's friends. They were part of a Girl Scout troop. And they were in New York City around the time of Christmas celebrating some festive as- aspects of the Christmas season in New York City. One of the things that they wanted to do was to go to a, a Christmas spectacular, a, a concert at, at the uh, Radio City Music Hall. And so... Kelly goes into the music hall, and she has tickets, and she's there with the group. She's there with her daughter, and all of a sudden, she hears over the loudspeaker a description of somebody that, that matches her, dark hair with a gray scarf. Immediately, she's approached by uniformed security officers, and they approach her, and they say, come with us. You've been asked to leave the premises. You can't be here. Why not? Well, it appears that Kelly's law firm that she worked for in New Jersey was in the midst of litigation with a Madison Square Gardens um, corporation that owned that venue and other venues. And because there was a lawsuit going on, that company, that corporation, had, had put on a list all of the employees of any law firm that would be in litigation and would not allow them in any of their venues. We say, well, how, out of all of the people that are flooding in and all of the people that are there, to, how did they know that Kelly was not allowed to be there? Well, the security told her that she was caught by facial recognition software. Every single person that came in there, their faces were scanned, and there was a database of all of these people. And in the words of Kelly, she says, they knew my name before I told them. They knew the firm I was associated with before I told them, and they told me I was not allowed to be there. Well, this morning, Psalm 95 describes two different kinds of people. Both of them identify themselves as the people of God. Now, now if you notice, I said they identified themselves as the people of God. Why did I say it that way? Because the text indicates this morning that how a person identifies themselves spiritually might not match up with reality. Notice back in our passage the contrast between these two different peoples. Notice verse 7. It says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And now contrast that with the second part of verse 10, where it describes these people as a people that go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So one of them are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand, and the other one are a people that go astray in their heart who have not known my ways. 
Now, a profound aspect of the biblical context of this psalm is that this psalm does not just speak to one era of the history of God's dealings with people in redemptive history. This psalm actually speaks to four distinct eras. Because if you caught in the words of Psalm 95, there is a, there is a backward look at the people of Israel that came out of the Exodus. So there is that distinct era of people, the, the Exodus era Israelites. There is also a speaking to the Davidic era Israelites. Then the author of Hebrews takes this passage and in the first century, he applies it very specifically to the first century Christians that were a part of the Hebrew church. And then the context reaches beyond that and it reaches finally to us. Those of us today who identify ourselves as the people of God. And so in any era, in any dispensation, there is a people of God. But amongst the people who profess him, there may be some that go astray in their heart because they have not known his ways. I want to ask you a very significant question this morning. How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing spiritually? Now, now, perhaps I asked that question and you heard the words and you're like, whatever. I don't care. This isn't for me. I'm not interested. If that was your attitude, then this is precisely for you. But perhaps you heard that and there's maybe some concern in your heart. Okay, where are we going with this? How am I doing spiritually? Why does that matter? Or perhaps you you examine yourself and, and you think, okay, what is God actually doing in my life right now? How are you doing spiritually? And the truth is this, is that God already knows. He doesn't need facial recognition software. His recognition of your heart, of your identity is more precise than the most invasive of human governments. He knows everything about you comprehensively, exhaustively, not just externally, but internally and especially spiritually. So how are you doing spiritually? And so at the center of David's sermon is the word today. Today, if you will hear his voice, if you will hear the Spirit's voice. And so some people look back at a past experience or a decision or deeds of the past to assure themselves that they are a part of God's people. But Psalm 95 calls us to consider what does today reveal? And at the conclusion of the psalm is the Spirit's call to rest. So... I want to encourage you, this is not a struggling for God's acceptance. This is not some sort of a hamster wheel of human effort in order to maintain my standing with God. There is rest that is truly here. Resting in God's promises and God's power. The resting soul doesn't dismiss the necessity of hearing the Spirit's voice today, but the resting soul is actively aware of God's transforming power. So how are you doing today spiritually? Is God at work in you? 
Where are your feet headed? What is the direction of your life? How is God moving in your heart? How is he growing you? How is he stretching you? How is he calling your attention to himself? The title of the message this morning is The Internal the eternal importance of today. And here's the theme I want you to get. The people of God must respond to the Spirit's words today. The people of God must respond to the Spirit's words today. And we're going to break this question about how you're doing spiritually into two parts that come directly from the passage today. The first question is, are you resting in him today? And the second question is, are you resisting him today? So first of all this morning, are you resting in him today? Now, if you are resting in him today, then you are invited to come and worship. Verses 1 through 7 are full of expressions of worship. And there's a command that's repeated twice. It is, it is a second-person plural command. It is for all of us, for all of you. Oh, come. Oh, come and worship him. It rallies God's true people to two distinct postures of worship, a posture of celebration and a posture of submission. And and so those are two kinds of worship. We worship in celebration and we worship him in submission. So first of all, come to him in celebration. Let Let me help this to make sense to you. Maybe you're aware, maybe you're not. But this coming Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. So let me just ask a quick question to the audience here today. How many of you will celebrate if the Eagles win the Super Bowl? Okay, there's 12 people. All right. So here's what I know. Here's what I know. If you did not raise your hand, if you have no enthusiasm for the Eagles winning the Super Bowl, then you are not a fan of the Eagles. You're like, that is the most obvious thing that you've said all day. No celebration, not a fan, not a part, doesn't apply to me. Do you celebrate God? Do you celebrate his victories? Do you celebrate his goodness? Do you celebrate his mighty power? Are you enthralled with him? Do you look forward to him? Do you long for him? Do you exalt him? If you don't celebrate him, how can you call yourself his people? And and so I want to encourage you. You might be like, Dr. Brock, I I want to worship him, but sometimes I just, my, my heart grows cold. Okay, I understand that. That's why this exhortation is given as a command. Oh, his people, come and worship. Celebrate in worship. Verse 1, let us sing unto the Lord. And the word Lord is the Yahweh. It's the covenant name for God. He is the I am, the self-existing one. And it thrills our heart to know him. Rejoice in your Savior. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now it's interesting. Some commentators take this phrase, 
the rock of our salvation as a military term that indicates a refuge from danger. I, I can see that. But I think it more likely points to a more ultimate and personal salvation. Paul indicates this in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, Israel did all eat the same spiritual meat, and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Jesus Christ, the Savior, the eternal Son of God, was with Israel in the wilderness, and and he was the one that offered true deliverance and true salvation. So make a joyful noise if he is your rock of salvation, and celebrate that. Thank the one who is near. Verse 2, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Have you ever have you ever sensed that God is distant from you? Have you ever woken up and thought to yourself, Lord, where are you? I just, I feel like I am alone. Consider what he has done for you and just start to say thank you for everything you can think of. Lord, thank you for waking me up this morning. Thank you that I can stand on my feet Thank you for this food that you provided. Thank you for the sunshine. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for, and the list can go on and on. And as you begin to make a habit of thanksgiving, this is what this verse says, come before his presence with thanksgiving. As we enter into his presence and we thank him, there is a connection. Psalm 100 verse 4 says the same thing. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him, and bless his name. We praise him for his greatness. In verse 2, make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. And there are three reasons given. He is greater than all so-called gods, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. There are no other true gods, but there are things that compete with him. There are forces that that would love to have the preeminence. And he is great above all of them. There is no comparison. There is no thing that can compete with him. He is sovereign over all creation. In verse 4, in his hand are the deep places of the earth and the strength of the hills also. And so from the deepest depths to the highest heights, all of it is in his hand. He controls all. All of the forces of nature, all of the powers that surround us, no matter how strong, no matter how mighty, no matter how unmovable, they are in his hands. He is greater because he created all else. Verse 5, the sea is his and he made it. His hands form the dry land. And there is this expansive expression of God's greatness both in his salvation and in his works to us and in his sovereignty and power and creation and we come to him and we celebrate those truths those realities we also come to him in submissive worship this is the other posture look at verse six. Oh, come let us worship and bow down Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So these three words, worship, bow down, and kneel, they all overlap. They mean to prostrate oneself before a monarch or a superior, to bow down, to 
physically bow down in supplication, to kneel down in adoration. It is a posture of submission. It is a posture with open hands where we say, Lord, I am yours. I am lowly. You are exalted. Direct me. The reason we submit to him is supplied by verse 7. For he is our God. What more do we need? Lord, you are my God. He is my God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. So the fact that he is our God speaks of his ownership of us and the metaphor of sheep pictures his ownership of us and our submission to him. Are you his sheep? Now that's, okay. I mean, you might be tempted to be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've learned that. I'm his sheep. I sang a song about that back when I was a kid in Sunday school. But, but no, are you really his sheep? Is that how you respond to him? Do you look to your shepherd? Does he guide you? Does he feed you? Does he, does he dictate your direction? Do you follow him? Do you submit to him? Do you see yourself as a sheep? And do you see him as your necessary and only shepherd? If you are not his sheep, in truth, then he is not your God. Jesus expresses this very truth in John 10. My sheep, Christ says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And so this this confidence that we have as the people of God belongs in relationship, shepherd with sheep and everything that entails, not in perfection, but in direction. And in the longing of my heart, I want to submit to him. So today, do you come to him in celebratory worship? Do you come to him in submissive Worship as the sheep of his hand. The people of God must respond to the Spirit's words today. So, first, are you resting in him today? If so, then come and worship. Let your life be defined by celebration and submission of the one true and living God, the shepherd of your soul. But David's psalm continues. The second question, are you resisting him today? Then come and rest. If you're resisting him today, then come and rest. And this is the very clear admonition that goes out from the king, the preacher. Will you listen? The Spirit is speaking to you. Notice in verse 7, today, if you will hear his voice, David is speaking to the people he hopes and believes are God's true people. And the author of Hebrews seems to share the same heart. This message is for God's people, yes. But what if they resist? Either actively or passively resist and fail to heed God. Then 
They marked themselves off as following the example of the Israelites who came out of Egypt, who only externally followed God. Notice this element of warning. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews brings this point out very clearly. In Hebrews 3, verses 6 and 7, but Christ as son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of our hope firm to the end. In Hebrews 3, 14, we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. And so will you listen? Will you listen today? Will your ears be open and your heart be open? The Spirit is speaking to you. Will you keep a receptive heart to God? He is seeking to lead you. Look at verse 8. The admonition continues, harden not your heart, as in the provocation. That is the Hebrew word meribah. Or as in the day of temptation, the Hebrew word masa in the wilderness. And so, and so here's the perspective, and I, and I don't have time to go back to Exodus 17, but this is an example of a time when, when Israel was about two or three months removed from, from being released from Egypt. They come out of the land of captivity, and, and now they're going out into the wilderness, and they've seen God's mighty hand. And then they got thirsty, but all they had was bitter water, and God made it sweet, and he made it drinkable. And then they got hungry, and God provided them manna, bread from heaven, to feed their hungry bodies. And in Exodus 17, after those events, they had no water once again. And they complained and they grumbled. And the text says that they hardened their heart against God. And if you look at Exodus 17, you're going to see something stand out to you. It doesn't seem that, like that big of a deal. They're hungry. They grumble towards Moses. I mean, anybody when they're hungry. They, they were hangry. We understand that. I mean, it just seems very human. But there was something going on beneath the surface. A hardened heart actually values other things before God. Notice in verse 9, it says, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work, literally, although they had seen my works, they knew what God can do. And so here's the point. This verse, verse makes, makes the point very plain that these Israelites that came out of Egypt, they didn't necessarily doubt God's existence. They didn't doubt his ability because they had just seen what he did. The children of Israel say something very significant. There's three times they're quoted in Exodus 13, I mean Exodus 17. They say to Moses, give us water that we may drink. They say, wherefore is that this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And they say this. They say, is the Lord among us or not? Their heart valued other things more than God. They wanted bread and they wanted God to provide. And if God didn't provide bread, then is he really among us? Is he really God? 
Has he, has, is he really who he says he is? And, and we, we kind of doubt that. And, and there is this expression that can well up in our hearts. And so today you're like, oh, I'm a person of God. And I believe that he is real. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross. And yet when crisis happens, you get angry with him. When you lose something that's precious to you, you doubt him. And you get bitter with him. And you turn your back on him. Do you use God for stuff? Do you tell God you'll follow or obey him if he takes care of you? How do you respond when God takes something away? And if you can only praise him in the good times, but not the low times. If he's only good when he blesses, but not when we don't see his hand of blessing. Then this is the same heart attitude that was brewing in the hearts of the Israelites that came out of Egypt. And the author of Hebrews warns believers about this deceitful heart of unbelief. Being hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Viewing God not as my goal. But as a bridge to the stuff that I really want in life. Unbelief isn't about not believing that God is real. Unbelief is believing that God exists for you and not you for God. Religion is full of people who say, I'm going to do this religion because if I do it right, I'm going to get what I want. A relationship with God says, there's one thing, one thing my soul desires, and that will I seek after that I may be with him and in his presence. And I don't have time, and I understand, I've taken a little bit too much. And I want to just bring this together as we wrap it up. And I want to I ask the question about what today says about who you are. Because salvation isn't won or lost in a day. It's not like if you have a bad day, you lose your salvation, and, and, and you got to maintain your salvation on a daily basis. But what happens in your heart today reflects the reality of who you are. Who God is to you today reflects who you know him to be. And notice in verse 10, this is a, not a moment that defined them, but this is a moment that revealed them. Verse 10, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, this is a people that go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. That's who they were. And so this morning, will you rest in God? He is sufficient to you. He is sufficient for you. Verse 11, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they shall not enter my rest. And the way that turned out in the Exodus was these people did not get to go into the promised land. But the author of Hebrews makes a very important point. He says that when David in Psalm 95 uses the word today, he's speaking beyond that generation to his present generation and beyond the present generation to future generations. The Spirit is speaking to us. Today, we need to rest in him. It doesn't mean working for him. It doesn't mean working to get into his good graces. It means resting in the gospel. What Christ has done is sufficient. But it means that there is nothing more important than that rest. The book of Hebrews says, let us strive to enter that rest. 
Like, Dr. Brock, wait a second. How can we strive to enter the rest? I thought we weren't supposed to work for God's acceptance. Let me illustrate it briefly with this. Let's say you're 50 miles out from the shore in the ocean. You've been swimming for hours. Your strength is running out. You're about ready to go under to your death when all of a sudden a rescue boat pulls up alongside of you. The rescue boat comes alongside and and with a life preserver attached to the rope, it tosses it out and it lands 10 feet to your side. As you notice that there, you feel encouraged and so with renewed effort, you start swimming to the shore. You only have 50 more miles to go. You can do it. That is striving for salvation. That is self-salvation and it will end in drowning. However, when you see that rescue line get launched into the water and you understand that that is your salvation, then nothing can keep you from reaching out with everything that you are and holding on to that. And then as they pull you onto the boat and they bring you on to safety, you would sob in thankfulness that you have been rescued by another. And if you're in here today and you don't know Christ because you're striving on your own to get to him. Or perhaps if you examine yourself today and you're a people, but not his people and the sheep of his pasture, then if you're resisting him today, come and rest. And believer, this is a sermon for us. If you are resting in him today, then come and worship. That is the call that goes to each of us. Come and worship. Lord, would you encourage our hearts with this sermon that has been repeated through history. May it resonate in us. May it call us. May it cause us to focus on today. And may we live for you. May we love you. May we celebrate you. May we cling to you. And as the author of Hebrews says, may our relationship with the living word of God be real. And may we come to you for grace and mercy to help in time of need. We submit this to you. I ask that you would do your work through your word in Christ's precious name. Amen.